It is time for us to begin our midday program here on KRVN. Good morning to you. Hope you're doing well on this Wednesday as uh, temperatures begin to rise a little bit across our area after two just beautiful, beautiful days. Joined uh, by Susan Littlefield and Jason Jorgensen and Dave Schroeder today as we begin to take a look at some of the issues that we're going to tackle over the next couple hours and we start our discussion with Susan Littlefield. Good morning. Well, good morning to you. How are we doing today? Everything uh, good, looking good and surprised? No surprises there so far? No surprises and surprise. It was a beautiful 55 degrees this morning and foggy. So does that mean rain or snow in 90 days? You know what? I don't know. I, 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 I've given up <laughs> on trying that. My wife has it written down, you know, like the 90 days after fog thing on the calendar, and it's never really amounted to anything. So, okay. You know, whatever, trying. We're trying. So, what do you got exactly. for us today? Well, we'll talk a little crops at, at twelve nineteen as Shaley does the last update with BASF and their technical service representatives, kind of recapping what this growing season has been like for producers. Then at twelve forty five, Clay will step in as Secretary of Ag. Sunny Purdue had that tough task when it came to regulatory loopholes on SNAP benefits. I don't know if you heard in the news, mm, but a yeah. Minnesota millionaire was able to get SNAP benefits because of a loophole. Though he didn't take them, he was able to prove that there were some issues. We'll get more on that coming up at 1245. And then wrapping it all up here at 117, we'll find out more about financial impairment and a webinar that's coming up with Alex. Well, I think the biggest thing we learned from that is got to watch those folks from Minnesota. Yeah, I know, I know. Figured that would come from you. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Have a good Thank day. Thank you. All right, very good. Jason Jorgensen is in here and uh, got to watch a little bit of Fred Hoiberg yesterday and in his press conference. You can see that on our site, too. Uh, I'm impressed by it. Interesting. Uh, they've had their preseason pre-tournament workouts before they go to Italy. Uh, as you might expect, got a lot of new faces there. Overhaul the entire roster. You bring in a new coaching staff, and you know, wow. so someone asked him. They said, "You need to put tape of the guys' names on their foreheads," and he admitted to, you know, calling some of the guys the wrong names. I bet. So. I bet he did. He did, however, mention Thor. So Thor's yeah. uh, he's he was impressed by him so far. He also said, uh, "I thought it was cool that uh, some of the new guys. There's only a couple guys who can actually understand what Doc Sadler's saying due to Doc's accent." But my guess is eventually they'll all be on the same page. So, but yeah, we encourage if you haven't seen that, uh, go check that out at krvn.com. That's a pretty good video. Also, we'll talk some college football. The preseason RMAC poll is out, and Shattered State is expected to have another nice year. They're predicted to finish third in the league. And it took seven years, but former UNK great Travel Delognev will end up with a bronze medal from the 2012 Summer Games. Because the gold medalist now has been ruled ineligible due to a uh, the use of a banned substance. I guess they've changed how they test things now and hmm. technology now they didn't have then. and They can go back and check yeah, it out. Oh. So uh, Travel's got a bronze medal headed his way. All right. Very good. All right. Thank you, Jason. We turn it over to Dave Schroeder. Stocks uh, down a little bit, at least on the Dow Jones. Yes, and uh, in somewhat mixed too earlier today, technology stocks were the brightest spot in the market uh, so far. A solid earnings report from Texas Instruments pushed the chip maker stock up 7%. Caterpillar dropped 4% after profits were weighed down by a cooling energy sector, and healthcare stocks also fell. The Dow uh, about uh, down 113 points. All right, very good. Thanks, everyone. That's all coming up on Midday. 
Time for us to take a look at our weather and how it's affecting agriculture for us and around the world. Paul Perkins joining us now, Paul, and I, I just I just saw, I don't know if you've seen this before yet, but uh, the roof of a hotel in Cape Cod just got blown off late yesterday at a tornado. Probably not something they're real used yeah. to seeing in Cape Cod. <laughs> maybe but hurricanes, but maybe not tornadoes. Tornadoes, so. yeah. That would be a rude awakening <laughs> yeah. for ever, whoever was on the top floor of that hotel. Exactly. That's now, today is a significant weather day in Nebraska history. Today, the actual 83rd anniversary of the hottest temperature ever recorded in Nebraska. Many locations actually had their hottest day ever on this day mm. in 1936. It was on this day, 1936, Minden recorded a high of 118. It's oh. believed to be the hottest temperature ever recorded in Nebraska. Many other locations recorded their hottest day ever on this date. 1936, Cambridge and Aurora hit 116 that day. Oakdale and Northeast Nebraska hit 115. Kearney at 114. Holdridge and Culbertson not too far behind at 113 on the state. 1936. The 30s were just brutal. Now yeah. it probably was. There probably wasn't much of a heat index because it was probably dry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, was it was dry more in. like a desert uh, situation. Oh. So it was more like probably a dry heat, and when the but air is dry, it uh, warms up quickly and cools off very quickly too. So, but not yeah, a, not an air conditioner anywhere to hide from that yeah, either. Exactly. Yeah. So, but intense heat, nonetheless, on this date, 1936 yeah. in Nebraska, believed to be probably one of the hottest days ever in the state of Nebraska. My goodness. All right. Well, let's don't relive that. <laughs> exactly. Not quite that hot for today. Most of us enjoying those nice temperatures still in the low to mid-70s for the most part across the area. We do have some upper 70s to low 80s over southwest Nebraska into much of northern Kansas and a few locations already touching into the low 80s in western Kansas. Colby and Hill City sitting at about 80 to 81. Just a few patchy clouds moving through but pretty much just wall-to-wall sunshine across the area. Today will be sunny and warmer with increasing south winds as high pressure slides to the east and low pressure approaches. We're right in the middle of those two systems. Scattered thunderstorms are possible in the central and west late today through tomorrow morning with the leftovers of some thunderstorms that develop over the high plains and then track to the east. Tomorrow through the weekend, though, mostly dry with seasonal temperatures when a ridge of high pressure expands to the east. Thunderstorms will be possible with the approach and passage of a cold front for Saturday night through Sunday. Otherwise, slightly cooler air behind that front for Monday. The late, late, late July temperature is expected to return by Tuesday with the rebuilding ridge of high pressure. Overall, the next seven days looking dry, and that also looks to be holding in the long-term forecast. The long-term forecast shows that it's likely Nebraska and Kansas temperatures will be above normal for Monday through the first six days of August. Also drier than normal on the forecast. That's still maintained for Nebraska, Kansas, and the Plains states for that drier weather Monday through the 6th of August. Weather factors impacting the markets include a warm and dry forecast in the Midwest and a stressful heat in Europe. A slow-moving cold front crossing the northern U.S. will tap into some monsoon flow of moisture over the southwest U.S. That will lead to a broken line of showers from the southwest to the northern plains and upper Midwest, but not a very organized line of showers. Dry weather and near or above normal temperatures will prevail between those two areas of showery weather. The Midwest during the next week to 10 days will be drier with seasonal to above normal temperatures. That combination of concern for stress to pollinating corn and flowering soybeans in this late development season. Soils in much of the Midwest have also dried 
substantially since the end of June. Topsoil moisture rated 29% very short to short in Michigan, along with 28% in Indiana and 20% very short to short in Illinois. The Southern Plains will turn very hot by the start of the coming weekend with the heat lasting through the entire 6-10 to 10 day period. That combination stressing row crops with irrigation usage likely to be extensive through the first week of August. The Northern Plains crop areas, though, will continue to benefit from a combination of seasonal temperatures and periods of rain. Most crop areas in Europe have another extreme heat wave. Major crop areas in France experienced triple-digit heat yesterday, and that heat expected to last through tomorrow. The impact of corn appears very likely. Temperatures will moderate between Friday and Sunday with some showers. That rain, though unlikely, that it will offset the impact from two historic heat events in Western Europe this summer. Boy, France is just getting cooked. Yes, uh, triple-digit heat there in uh, many locations uh, close to their hottest temperatures ever. Wow, sacre bleu. Yeah. <laughs> so that's rough. Well, uh, we, will, uh, we will see, but we're moving into those dog days for sure. Exactly, and we're going to get a good taste of some heat over the next uh, two weeks here at least. Uh, above normal temperatures expected. Enjoy the nice stuff while we've got it, but it looks like that heat may be back on the way. No signs of it'll be what we experienced last week, but it, it, it is possible since we are in that hottest time of the year right now. All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. Where do you go to check in on your weather? KRVN.com. It's time again this week that we'll check in with BASF, and this week we visit with Technical Service Representative Brady Kapler. And Brady, this is actually the last time we'll be visiting with you for this growing season, the last update from BASF, and it has been a unique one to say the least. Let's first just get a little update from you, though, what you're seeing at this point in the season with your growers. Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's been... Uh, very seems like the year's gone very fast too that's the other thing about it but uh you know what we're seeing right now is is that uh you know the corn has really taken off in the last uh, couple weeks um we're well into the pollination phase uh moving along in reproductive phases uh beans are catching up um they may not be the tallest beans out there but there's a when i'm looking around i'm seeing a lot of pods too so things are growing well and, uh, you know, we're seeing some light disease develop, um, some concerns we're keeping an eye on, the stuff that's developing to the south uh, for southern rust and other diseases that we have that may blow in. And so we want to be definitely diligent about that. But the great thing is, is that for a lot of the areas, we've maintained some really good rainfall and uh, we're able to uh, have, you know, crop all things considered uh, is looking pretty good. So then let's just kind of recap this growing season, Brady. I think every time we've talked, uh, we've mentioned how interesting it's been, certainly one for the books. And so when we take a look back on this growing season, maybe some of the highlights, some of the lessons learned from it. Well, one of the, the biggest thing, I mean, obviously Mother Nature and the weather have been the driver of what's gone on. And, you know, even though things are not perfect out there, it's not probably going to be our best crop ever. Um, it's been something that's been shaped by a lot of weather early on, and, and, and it's how quickly we forget where things were. I mean, started out with the flooding back in March, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. And we've had a lot of different weather events. Some areas, unfortunately, have been struck by hail and other things. But I think the big thing, to, the, the struggle this year was definitely the weed control and the issue with trying to get residual herbicides on trees were just a struggle from the start. 
and the timing and being able to get into some fields. And there were areas where guys never even got in fields before they came up. And, and there's still some areas where guys haven't been able to get to fields just because of how wet it's been. So the moisture has, has drove that in and definitely affected that. And so weed control has probably been a big challenge and has been something that's been really important. Um, when you've been able to prior, prioritize it and get to fields and get them controlled, there's definitely a difference between um, what has gotten treated and what is not. And then finally, maybe just talk about some of the things to consider um, as we finish out this growing season. You mentioned right at the beginning, it seems like it has gone so fast, and it really has. So things just to keep in mind through the rest of this growing season and even into the next. Well, this is certainly, despite everything that has happened, this is certainly not a crop that we're going to give up on and just say, hey, we're done with it type of thing. This is a crop that we need to keep supporting. And so, you know, right now is the timing. We talk about fungicides and plant health. Um, and those, they, we need to stay focused on that. Um, the good thing about all this moisture is, is that the, the irrigated farmer has saved some dollars and the dryland guy has a crop that looks like it might make something. And so um, there are some opportunities out there to make this an even better crop. And I think that's the thing that definitely keep focused on this and, and make the best that we possibly can out of this situation. This year has not been perfect by any means and it's not been always nice to us, but at the same time, it's something we still have an opportunity in a lot of areas to make some decent uh, crop out of this deal and have some good yields. All right. Thanks so much. It's Brady Kapler, your BASF Technical Service Representative. I'm Shaylee Peters, and you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Time for us to take a look at sports. Jason Jorgensen in studio with us. Jason, did you know it was on this day in 1983 that the bizarre pine tar incident took place? Nope, I did. I remember watching that as a nine-year-old. Oh, he was <laughs> mad. Oh, good old Billy Martin, uh, George Brett. George, but but I for, I had forgot that it the it was reinstated a little bit later, and Kansas City actually won that. Yeah, game. they did. So a game that started, then they had the incident, and they came back and they finished it, and yeah. So I, I just saw that. I just saw that in history, and I thought that's a special day for Kansas City <laughs> Royals fans, right there. So that's that's for sure. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Well, let's talk some Husker basketball. Nebraska continues to get set for its trip to Europe in the near future. New head coach Fred Hoiberg met with the local media yesterday to preview the Huskers' trip to Italy. Hoiberg hit on several topics, including points of emphasis during the Huskers' summer workouts and getting the team to actually know one another. These guys have never really played before, any of them, with the exception of Thor uh, and Burke. Uh, a little bit last year so you've got all these new guys that you're trying to figure out where they fit in the court uh, we're going to experiment with lineups uh, a lot on this trip uh, I just put in a new set and a new system yesterday um, that uh, we need to start picking up better but uh, you know the thing that we're looking for most with, with our players is to go out there and compete and, and it's, it's as simple as that something tells me that the Huskers are going to be pretty decent this winter if he can find a way to get them to share the basketball a little bit if they'll listen to doc sadler and play some defense they got some dudes on that team yeah this is a talented probably of a nebraska basketball team as we well, there's some guys on that roster the likes of which we haven't seen before no. but it's all it's all gonna mesh mm-hmm. uh, the huskers will spend nine days in italy now if you'd like to see more of coach hoiberg you see all of his press conference yesterday you can find the video krvn.com. Nebraska freshman defensive back Miles Farmer was cited Monday night for possessing a small amount of marijuana. University police cited him for possessing less than an ounce of marijuana around 1130. He becomes the fourth different Husker 
to be picked up for weed this off season. Just this off season? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Might be a pretty mellow bunch. <laughs> the IOC has decided that the 2012 Olympic gold medalist Artur Tamazov of Uzbekistan tested positive for a prohibited substance. Now, with the sanction, he's disqualified from the London Games. And with that result vacated, it means that U.S. wrestler and former UNK great Travel Delognev, who placed fifth at the London Games, is expected to be awarded an Olympic bronze medal in his weight class. Lognev was a two-time NCAA Division II national champion for UNK. He is currently an assistant coach for Ohio State. The 11 head coach of the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference has voted the Shadron State College football team as a preseason choice to finish third this fall. The league made that announcement today. Picked to finish first as usual is Colorado State University Pueblo, followed by Colorado School of Mines. Lots of Legion and District Baseball yesterday, and that continues on. Cozad Reds fell 10-4 to in the championship game to McCook. So McCook, they win the B6 Seniors title. The A7 Juniors Championship went to Hastings as they knocked out Kearney 6 to nothing. And in the A7 Seniors Tournament, Kearney beat, or Hastings beat Kearney Runza 6-5. to So both of those teams will be moving on to state. Also, the Class B Juniors event is going on. That wraps up today in McCook. The title game at 1 is Hickman against Central City. So there you go. It's the time of the year. Nice job on the Uzbekistan pronunciation, too. Yeah, I thought you did that well. I appreciate it. But seven years to wait for a medal. <laughs> I asked some folks why this took so long. There's technology now in place that wasn't back then. Now, I don't know what prompted them to come up and test all of this, and maybe this has been a question since 2012, but seven years is a long way to, long time to wait for a medal. Does the IOC have a whole bunch of refrigerators with urine samples I in them from years back? Don't know. I don't think no, I. I don't, I don't think I really want to know. So. That's a look at sports. For more, find it anytime at krvn.com. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Thank you, sir. Time for us to take a look at our local news and see what's going on. Brandon Bennett's in studio with us. And, Brandon, tough story coming out of Elm Creek right now. That's absolutely right, Scott Foster. Two Elm Creek children injured following an electrical contact, one of them fatally. According to the Buffalo County Sheriff's Office, it occurred about 4.32 yesterday afternoon in rural, on a rural Elm Creek farm. Two children transported to the scene from the scene, rather, to CHI Health Good Samaritan Hospital in Kearney. One of the children, 7-year-old Aubrey Hubbard, died shortly after her arrival. So our thoughts and prayers certainly go out to all of the family and the extended Elm Creek family throughout the area. The other child, a 5-year-old brother, received non-life-threatening injuries and was admitted to CHI Health Good Samaritan Hospital. Preliminary investigation indicates this was an accidental electrocution incident. Foul play is not suspected. Investigation, of course, ongoing with the assistance from a number of people, including the Buffalo County Attorney's Office, Elm Creek Volunteer Rescue Squad, CHI Health Good Samaritan Hospital paramedics, and the Nebraska Electrical Inspector Division. And, you know, with all the things going on in Washington right now, and Bob Mueller's testimony continues on the Hill, unfortunately, something like this gives you a true perspective in uh, what's really important in our lives and what's just ancillary noise in the background, Scott. Yeah, it's a good time to remember to go hug your kids. That's exactly right. Other news, police say a 34-year-old woman was fatally shot after a break-in in her home and about a mile east of downtown Lincoln. Officers sent to the home about 3.45 a.m. this morning found the woman inside the home. Police say that there were seven other people in the home at the time, her boyfriend and six children ranging in age from 6 to 16 years old, including five that are her children. No other injuries are reported, nor any arrests, at least at this hour. And, Scott, if you can believe it, it was just two weeks ago 
that the floodwaters started to rise in Kearney and some other places. We got that storm on Tuesday night, and the floodwaters came on Wednesday. It was that Wednesday that the University of Nebraska Kearney not only received uh, significant flood damage in a couple of different buildings, but also were crucial in the response to helping others out in the Kearney area. Last week, I had a chance to chat with the Chancellor, Doug Christensen, there at UNK, and he walked us through the timeline and how they responded to what Kearney needed most at the time. We had a retreat here on campus, and we took a little break, and somebody flashed a picture around that they were closing uh, 2nd Avenue, and the flooding was occurring at uh, the Eunice Center, and uh, we saw the live drone shots and actually took a little time out from our uh, retreat, my response and uh, that of John Watts, the, the vice chancellor, business and finance are here. We both had the same idea that we've got friends that are in need. We've got to do something quickly. And our guiding principle was if we were flooded, what would we need? And uh, I called Paul uh, Eunice and a couple of the other uh, hotels and I said, do you need places for people? There was an immediate yes. So we opened up our residence halls, our uh, housing staff just did a great job and got that all organized. You mentioned earlier about the George Brett pine tar, so we're going to go with the baseball analogy here, a little inside baseball for you. In one of my earlier careers at UNK, I served on the emergency operations team, which is that group of individuals that comes together and helps to plan and prepare for responses. UNK actually has already prepped, and this was many years ago, and actually done an action plan and an exercise if there was ever an emergency in town where they had to, on an emergency short-term basis, house people, UNK was already prepared for that. Mm. So it's one of those things that UNK's planning and preparation from many years ago really paid off in a time of critical need here. And finally, I don't know if you or probably your kids were ever a big fan of Power Rangers. Not, Back not, in the day. Not, not that I recall. Well, we're not doing Power Rangers. We're doing Ranger Power. It's a New York company. They want to build a 230-megawatt solar power farm east of Nebraska's capital city of Lincoln. And then the Ranger Power, not Power Rangers, has, it ex- has, it has arranged leases with owners of more than 1,000 acres near Lincoln Electric System substation. They want to build the entire project in one phase, but it could be difficult if it doesn't get enough power purchase commitments. Total cost estimate, $230 million. So... They're calling it a solar power farm. I wonder what their input costs are, and I wonder what their uh, bushels per acre is going to be. Well, we'll see. Now, that was like Donatello and Michelangelo. Those were the Power Rangers, right? Those were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The Power Rangers were all different colors, I think. I remember seeing the commercial, but never could bring myself to actually watch one of those shows. Sure you didn't. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it. Earlier this week, Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue called a press conference to relay the message that he was directing the USDA to take on a large task. Close a policy loophole that allows states to make participants receiving minimal temporary assistance for needy families or TAMF benefits automatically eligible to participate in USDA's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or commonly called SNAP. According to the American Farm Bureau Federation, in the 2018 Farm Bill, nutrition assistance made up over 76% of the $428 billion four-year budget while other programs like crop insurance made up less than 9% of the Farm Bill budget. Secretary Purdue opened his statement to reporters with why he wanted to review how states enrolled people for SNAP benefits. 
You know, at USDA, it's our job to ensure the people who truly need food assistance receive what they're entitled to. However, what we found is some states are taking advantage of loopholes that allow people to receive the SNAP benefits who would otherwise not qualify and for which they are not entitled. At the USDA, we're taking action to strengthen SNAP by reforming what's called broad-based categorical eligibility. This loophole allows our states to take participants receiving TANF benefits, the program run by HHS that provides cash and other benefits to individuals, and make them automatically eligible to participate in SNAP. We will be proposing a rule to close this loophole that allows states to bypass the congressionally mandated income and asset test. Unfortunately, automatic eligibility has expanded to allow even millionaires and others who simply receive a TANF-funded brochure to become eligible for SNAP when they clearly don't need it. Administrator of the Food and Nutrition Service at USDA, Brandon Lips, showcased why this broad-based categorical eligibility impacts in a negative way many families. Under broad-based categorical eligibility, individuals receive benefits as minimal as information brochures printed with TANF funds and are made automatically eligible for the SNAP program. States have used this flexibility to enroll more than 3 million individuals in SNAP who would not otherwise qualify. It is time to bring common sense to SNAP categorical eligibility policy, allowing flexibility when it is appropriate, but not when it undermines program integrity. The use of broad-based categorical eligibility has led to great inconsistency across states, with families in similar circumstances eligible for very different benefits depending on which side of the state line they live on. That is not how Americans expect their federal government to work. Broad-based categorical eligibility allows individuals to access SNAP for up to two years, receiving thousands of dollars in benefits without having gone through a robust eligibility determination. This rule aims to address that. The new rule for SNAP now at the Federal Register looks to place everyone through the same process to qualify for SNAP benefits. Specifically, in order to confer categorical eligibility, a TANF benefit must now be both substantial and ongoing. To be substantial, the benefit must be valued at at least $50 per month. It must also be ongoing. The household must receive or be authorized to receive the benefit for at least six months. FNS is specifically seeking public comment on our proposed definitions of substantial and ongoing. Non-cash TANF benefits that could convey categorical eligibility would be restricted to three types. Subsidized employment, work supports such as transportation, and child care assistance. FNS seeks public comment on whether these or other TANF benefits are best suited to this end. These changes are meant to ensure that we have a clearer and more consistent nationwide policy on categorical eligibility while still maintaining state flexibility and program administration. USDA is committed to ensuring that SNAP participants have access to the food they need while also ensuring that states do not take advantage of loopholes that expand eligibility. Following Secretary Purdue and Undersecretary Lips' comments, the press asked the tough questions, including what the expected savings were when the loophole was closed. USDA is estimating that a little over 3 million people are likely not to qualify for SNAP benefits after they're subjected to the asset and income test that Congress prescribed in statute for those who enter through regular program rules. We estimate that that will result in a average federal savings of about $2.5 billion per year or $25 billion over the 10-year baseline. 
Another tough question answered concerns school-age children and their access to safe and healthy meals without SNAP. USDA is estimating that almost all of the children who will no longer be directly certified for school meals if their parents are not categorically eligible for SNAP would qualify for free and or reduced price meals um, through the regular school meals application process. Undersecretary Lips closed his comments with restating the facts that USDA was trying to do by closing the SNAP loophole. We're going to continue to move policies forward that help move people back to dependency. As you know, SNAP has a wonderful employment and training program that helps support people as they move into jobs and to move off. Congress sets the income and asset limits for the SNAP program. And as a matter of fact, they considered some policies that would support changes in some of those statutory standards to advance that forward in uh, the previous Farm Bill, and and they didn't uh, take forward all of those things. What we're trying to fix today with this proposed rule is to ensure that the benefits are going to those in need based on income and asset tests that Congress provided. If you would like your voice heard on the SNAP loophole, you can share your thoughts at regulations.gov. Again, go to regulations.gov. There you can share your thoughts and concerns about closing the SNAP loophole. The comment period will continue for the next 60 days. Reporting on the Rural Radio Network, I'm Clay Patton. And remember, keep a straight row. It's our time of midday when we take a look at the financial markets and see what's going on here and around the world and uh, overseas. In the overnight, the Japanese Nikkei index was up 89. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong was up 74. The FTSE in London, however, is uh, maybe not as excited about Boris as some other people are. They're down 54. And the German DAX index is up 32. Here in the United States, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 121 points. The NASDAQ is down 32. And the S&P is up just a little bit at four points. And uh, we're joined by Dave Schroeder to make sense of it all. Well, I don't know about making sense. But going a little bit further, though, on those uh, market indicators, the stocks are mixed today in trading on Wall Street uh, with a steep decline from health insurers uh, counteracting the sharp gains for technology companies. While the NASDAQ composite, while the S&P 500 index remains flat, the uh, the tech-heavy NASDAQ composite uh, of smaller stocks are seeing solid gains. Technology stocks are the brightest spot in the market. Solid earnings report from Texas Instruments pushed the chipmaker stock higher and made the sector the biggest gainer. Industrial stocks moved broadly higher after UPS beat Wall Street's financial forecast. Uh, health insurer Anthem sank 4.5% after the insurer reported higher costs. The health care sector fell broadly. In other news, Nebraska's leading economic indicator fell during June. That's according to the most recent report from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Bureau of Business Research. The leading indicator is a composite of economic factors that predict economic growth six months into the future. It fell by 0.29%. The June decline was the first decrease of the leading indicator so far in 2019. Uh, The university's economist Eric Thompson says the leading economic indicator fell due to a drop in manufacturing hours worked and airport passenger employments during June. Also an increase, though, in initial claims for unemployment insurance. And the drop in the leading indicator suggests that the pace of economic growth will slow in Nebraska towards the end of 2019.
New home sales rose at a modest pace in June, but remains below sales levels earlier this year, suggesting low mortgage rates and a healthy job market are having a limited impact. The uh, Commerce Department says new home sales increased 7% to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 646,000 homes. So a couple of uh, indicators there on uh, what's going on in the uh, world of finance. All right, very good. Well, thank you, Dave. Looks like uh, oil prices down just a little bit, still $56 a barrel. impairment on the farm. On the Rural Radio Network, I'm Alex Wojcicki, joined in studio by Kim Clark. She's a UNL Dairy Systems Extension educator. Kim, this is not an easy topic to talk about, but you all are hosting a webinar on this topic. So let's start off by reviewing what you guys will be addressing. Well, this year we are seeing even greater challenges created by the weather with the flooding, some blizzards out in the western part of the state challenges growing forages and other feeds and so we're hearing from producers across the state and actually across the midwest that are having challenges on their farm so this is a great opportunity we felt within our i-29 moo university consortium to host a webinar talking about financial impairment so uh, we're really going to focus on talking about some some laws and taxation issues uh, that producers may be facing should they look at a bankruptcy option, even potentially looking at some other financial resources, working with the banks, what are some considerations that need to be made? You mentioned that this is focused on farmers, but who else can attend this and, and how do they know that this is something that they could benefit from? Really anyone in agriculture will benefit from this webinar even if you're not the person with any financial impairment or considering bankruptcy or in a time where your farm is operating in the red, uh, this is really for anyone involved in agriculture, whether you're a forage producer, a cow-calf farmer, a feedlot producer, dairy farmer, really anyone involved in agriculture is invited to attend. Now, Kim, there is no fee to participate in this in this webinar, but you guys are asking for registration. How do they get registered for this webinar? There's a couple ways you can get registered for this webinar. Uh, there's some information on the dairy.unl.edu website about how to get registered. It'll take you to the link to register, or it's easiest to, even if you email me, and my email is Kim Clark. K-I-M-C-L-A-R-K at U-N-L dot E-D-U. I can make sure you get registered. And when after you register, you'll be sent an email how to join the webinar. So this webinar is coming up July 30th. Are there any other events or anything that should be on our radar coming up? We do have several other events coming up. July 31st and August 1st, we are doing I-29 Moo University is hosting a profitability workshop. Uh, and that's going to focus on some areas of the farm you can look at uh, for if you're in tough financial times. So just some minor changes that aren't going to impact your growth rate or milk production, but just some, some simple reminders for budgeting and finances. And then on August 2nd at noon, we are hosting a silage webinar uh, as we're getting ready to pull corn out of the field for silage, just some reminders and information related to chop length, moisture when you harvest the corn silage, as well as some important safety reminders. Um, we're pretty fortunate that 
we haven't had a lot of safety issues or accidents with corn silage, but that's because of the management and handling that we have involved there. And for more details on the silage webinar, again, if you visit dairy.unl.edu, you can find out the details and get registered for that webinar. Great information. Thanks so much for joining us. That was Kim Clark. She's a UNL Dairy Systems Extension Educator, broadcasting from the Nebraska Soybean Board News Desk, which is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. As we ended the day higher in soybeans and wheat and a little bit lower in corn, didn't seem to gain any traction today. As we're with uh, John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. Overall, what was your uh, impression of this with wheat leading the way higher? A market that, well, wheat obviously has a story here. Tunisia came in and... uh and got some offers for their tender a month ago. They were getting offered two hundred dollars a metric ton. This this month they got two hundred two ten a metric ton. So you're seeing the wheat prices globally start to inch higher. And uh, we think that you know this is typically the cheapest time of the of, of the year for for the global market. So you know short run. I think there's some overhang with the spring wheat markets and obviously uh, you know the good KC wheat harvest. But in in our opinion here, uh, you know if the market doesn't rally before. Uh, the first of September, I certainly think it'll rally after. Um, you know, the markets are tremendously opportunistic here, uh, especially given uh, the amount of money that's being pumped into the, the global markets by the central banks, and I think that's something you have to remember here. Uh, wheat is essentially a proxy for the food markets globally, and uh, I don't think there's any room for us to be cheaper, especially given what's going on in Asia. And we were oversold in this wheat market, weren't we? Yeah, I mean... We need to see Minneapolis turn around, and that's the one thing. I've, I've been watching this thing just bleed itself to death over the last, really, six weeks. Um, we were up around 580, you know, to, to end the month of June, and now we're, we're sitting here down around uh, 522. So we need to get that market turned around, but until we get kind of the spring wheat harvest digested, which won't start here for a little while, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, on the corn side, and really feed grains, I think, are following the wheat markets. Corn is it's so easy to push corn around. Uh, you get a negative forecast, the market tends to fall apart. I, I just don't think there's enough real big players here who think this thing's going to move in the short run um, that, that are going to push it. So uh, I'm a little pessimistic going home today that we couldn't hold that, that uh, 435 level. I thought maybe we'd be cooking with gas if we got through that and rallied up to 440, but couldn't do it. Fall back to 430 there on, the, on a wetter forecast. But, again, I don't see anything really changing here given that uh, – um, you know, this is about the USGA report out in, what, 13 trade sessions now. Yeah, and uh, so much can happen before then. It's called a little volatility, and it could move one way or the other, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in, in moving over to soybeans, it's soy meal. Soy meal's cheap. Soybeans have a story with the Chinese exports, but uh, until there's actual product movement, I don't think we're, uh, we're going to be getting out of this range. Thanks, John. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. For more information, you can always go to their website as well, danielzagmarketing.com. Dewey Nelson reporting on the Rural Radio Network. That'll do it for our midday program here on KRVN. To hear today's midday program in its entirety, go to podcasts on krvn.com.